The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. I am running on fumes, viewers and listeners. I am full into the dad experience right now, working off very little sleep thanks to my very, very terrific young child who has developed this almost like drug addict, like obsession with like having books read to him. And first it was cute. Like he would hold up the book and say, daddy, read the book. And of course I want to read the book. Cause like I got to encourage literacy. That's great. But now like every moment he sees me, he's just like throwing books at me, like read, read, read. And, and he doesn't want to sleep. He just wants to be read to. And I guess it's a good problem to have, but I am exhausted, but I'm going to power through this because another you know, dad of a young child is here with me. And between the two of us, maybe we are close to being one functionally awake person. Zach Sloan, co-host here. Hey, Zach. My daughter went through the same thing. I mean, she's still kind of there, not to that extent, but oh yeah, I think that's a, that, that is a baby thing that they go through. I mean, like, did you do like, uh, like how aggressive were you about like the screen time and like, or no screen time when the kid was a baby? Like, not super aggressive. Like, you know, it's it's hard to really feel bad about your kid watching Mister Rogers. You know what I mean? No, I hear you. No, but like, look, you know? if if it were my call, like I'd have that kid parked in front of an iPad twenty four and seven. But you know, my wife's taken a, a view on this, and so I'm you know about like no screen time. So I'm trying to embrace that. But what the consequence of this has been is that effectively books are the most entertaining thing as far as this kid is concerned. And so the kid has become obsessed with like having books read to him in yeah. the same way that like other, like me being obsessed with just scrolling TikTok all day. And so if he doesn't get his very hungry caterpillar or his brown bear, brown bear, he's like throwing books at me and he's crying through that. It's a weird, good problem to have. Like, I'm glad he's loving to read, but holy mackerel, man, I'm so sleep deprived as a result. Um, it's, it's a but, tough, it's a tough thread to navigate, a tough rope to walk. I, I don't know if there's actually the right answer. I hear you, and you know, I, I'm not even fully convinced that like because they always say, oh, you got to read to your kids at a very young age, and you know, I don't know if that's true or not. You know, I think that's just probably something they. It's just big book trying to, uh, trying to just mess with all of us. You know, try to get us just to to keep Eric Carl books in business. Um. Agreed. So it is Down a pleasure. Literacy. That's what I'm saying. You know, books have had it too good for too long. It is a pleasure to be chatting with you, Zach Sloan, musician, producer, all around fantastic human being using the caption, the nicest follow on X there on StreamYard. I, I love that. I hate, I hate having to call it X. That is so frustrating. You know, what the most annoying thing about that branding is by calling the company X, they have now lost the ability to refer to the thing that you do on that platform as a noun. When it was Twitter, it was, oh, check out this tweet I just tweeted. What are you supposed to say about X now? Like, oh, check out this X I just X'd? What the hell is I, that? I say check out that 10. Well, I mean, but that works for you. All of your tweets are 10s. But what about for the rest of us who don't just put out bangers every time they get on social media, Zach? Please, Ryan, don't encourage people to check my Twitter. It's been it, it, Twitter tumbleweeds or X or whatever. It's just, dude, politics ruined it for me. I I can't. I I spend almost no time there anymore. It's it's too much. <laughs> I just I am bitter enough without that. <laughs> I just. I just imagine that, like, if you go to Zach Sloan's X account right now, like, it's just this desolate land with, like, tumbleweeds. You just see, like, one, like, you know, old figure off into the distance, and you, like, tap her on the shoulder. It's like, is this the Zach Sloan Twitter account? And she just turns her head and goes, 
No one has used that name in a thousand years. It's that's I I I would be willing to bet money that my last at least five tweets are just about to go live with Break the Business, and then that's it <laughs> until the next month that says about to go live with Break the Business. That I would bet that. There you go. So even as you left X behind, you still stayed firm to wanting to promote the uh, program. We very much appreciate that. So I got a lot of things I want to talk to you about, Zach. Um, but I, I will say, but I want to do something a little different and start with the AI Overlord tip of the week this week. Before you play the imaging, Lauren, um, I want to tell, because I saw it, like producer Lauren already had her finger on the imaging button. I want to just tell you why first I want to get into the AI Overlord, because you do so many great things on the show. When we have you on the show, like it just makes me happy because I know that we're going to have some magic when you are here. And <laughs> one of my favorite pieces of magic that when somebody says to me like, Oh, can you send me like a clip from your podcast that like is going to make me laugh? Cause you know, people always say like, what makes your show different than like all the other entertainment industry shows out there? I was like, well, we do all the entertainment industry stuff, but we try to make you laugh too. And then they go, well, well, make me laugh then. And then I will inevitably show them the Shakespeare clip of Zach Sloan uh, channeling Orson Welles from the Paul Masson wine commercial. And for some, like, that just makes me laugh every single time. Now, Lauren, as as a thumbs up, do we have the Paul Masson wine commercial queued up or should I go to the Zach Sloan clip first? Okay, she's saying either way. All right, let me set it up this way then, okay? Tis, I need to take people back to the beginning for them to fully understand what I'm talking about here. So Zach and I, a few months ago, this would have been back in April, I think, became obsessed with this 1979 clip of late film director, filmmaking legend, really, Orson Welles, later in his career, post-Susan Kane and all that, um, be, a, being a spokesperson for Paul Masson Wines. And at this point in his career, he's not, you know, putting the same work into his craft that he used to. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. He's kind of, you know, he's phoning it in, so to speak, as all the legends do. We don't begrudge them that. But what we got as a result is a series of outtakes from Orson Welles doing one of these Paul Masson wine commercials where. He seems intoxicated. I don't want to, you know, we can use the phrase allegedly here. Allegedly. He appears intoxicated uh, and he's talking about the wine and he's trying to read the script and it just comes out hilarious in the process. Lauren, can you just show us a little bit of the outtakes of this 1979 commercial with Orson Welles? Ah, the French champagne <laughs> has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So Paul Masson. Okay, this one's even better. This is the next clip. Two, take three. Action, please. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French <laughs> excellence. It's fermented in the bottle and like the best French. Okay. So ever since Zach and I first like talked about this clip back in April, I've just been like going up to random people, just going, the French. And you know, we so we enjoyed that clip. We had a lot of fun with it. We had laughs. And then, and then we forgot about the clip until a few months later. No, this was in April when, when this next thing happened. A few months later, we did this AI Overlord tip of the week, as we are wont to do on this show, where you, Zach, me, and producer Lauren acted out a Shakespearean scene composed by ChatGPT uh, talking about how artists can promote themselves on TikTok. It was wonderful. I I did my best. Lauren did an excellent job as a you know professional actress that she is. But fair to say, the person who stole the show, the MVP of that scene, was you, Zach Sloan, because in the scene you made the incredible, immaculate acting choice 
of channeling Orson Welles in the 1979 Palma Sun wine commercial. And so you gave us this masterpiece. Lauren, please play the clip from the Shakespearean scene. Please thank these Balthazar for thy counsel wise. And in this TikTok world, our art, art shall rise. With wit and brevity, our message we shall send. And through this boundless space, our fame extend. Aye. And there's Lord coming in. Hi. Um, just, just, just a masterpiece. Like, like watching, you know, Picasso just painting in real time. Just wonderful. Everything I wanted it to be. And, you know, ever since that happened, I have been trying to figure out a way that we could get you to give us Orson Welles again. And that brings me to this week's AI Overlord Tip of the Week. I'm going to tell you what I did here, Zach. All right. Um, I I loved your your interpretation of Orson Welles in that Shakespearean scene. And of course, I loved the original Orson Welles 1979 clip. And so I wondered if we could find a way to combine those things with a piece of advice. So here's what I asked ChatGPT yesterday in preparation for all of this. I said to ChatGPT, hey, ChatGPT, you wouldn't happen to know about a 1979 outtake of a TV commercial that Orson Welles did for Paul Masson Wine, where he was allegedly drunk and slurring his words. And I thought for sure ChatGPT was going to be like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. But damn it if ChatGPT didn't reply with, oh, you better believe I know about this scene. Um, because I am a AI of culture. And of course, I know about one of the greatest things that's ever been captured on film. So I said to ChatGPT, I was like, okay, you know, the, you know the outtake I'm talking about. Great. I want you to take that Orson Welles character drunk in that commercial and have him give us a tip of the week for indie creators and write that script. And so it wrote the script and the script's pretty amazing. I read it. It is amazing. And at first I was going to try to interpret it, but... I think what the people need, Zach Sloan, you're really like distancing yourself from the mic there. I see it. I've got, what, an entrance, I got an entrance idea. Oh, very good. Is I think people need to see you bring back the Orson Welles character from that Shakespearean scene and have you read the script of, of uh, artist advice that Chad GPT wrote. Can you do that for us? I've waited my entire life for this moment. Yes! Fantastic! All right, I'm gonna lay out here. I wonder, Lauren, should we just give him the big screen? Like, do I? I just need it. There we go. That's that's what the people, the seat, the the floor is yours, Zach Sloan. Let me see if I can give you some music here. So he he doesn't do anything. Oh, uh, oh, start. Oh. <laughs> Ah, the modern. What is it? Uh, uh, artist? Artist. Forever trapped in something. Technology, other <laughs> stuff. Like this French wine. It's important to let things breathe. This good swig. <laughs> what was I uh, saying? All right. Be true. Yes, be be true. Just like I did once did. Something important with the cinemas. <laughs> Carve paths. That's it. Paths. The industry is a fickle. Yeah, fickle. They may rush or some things, and but like the wine, your thing, don't rush it. 
We don't sell this stuff. Um, too early. What was that? Cute. Bye. Oh, yes. Patience. And the other thing is persistency. No. Persistence. Persistence. And be you. Because something about your worth. Are we done? <laughs> I think you have one more line, Mr. Wells. No! To you, <laughs> creators! With spirit and noise! Cheers! Hey, top me off. <laughs> Bravo! <laughs> now, a couple things need to be made clear here. Like, Zach was interpreting a script. What he was reading was what Chad GPT wrote. Like, every every yeah. slur, every half word. Like, sometimes when we do these tips of the week, I've let this cat out of the bag before, that Chad GPT will write something, and we need to do a lot of editing on the back end to make it something that's ready for broadcast. This week, I didn't have to touch a damn thing. <laughs> That script was perfect first draft, just completely spectacular. And, you know, much how the perfect script can only be truly brought to life by the perfect acting performance. We saw that by one Zach Sloan, who just just lit the screen up there. Just a, a miraculous performance, Zach. I think I made the mistake of going too far of Orson Welles and Christopher Walken that time. I think if I could do it again, I would dial back the Walken and up the Wells. But that was a decision I made in the moment, and sometimes they don't work, Ryan. Sometimes it felt right. It, I don't know if, if like, you know, I th it felt I think, right. I think uh, maybe. I appreciate the vote of confidence, but I think... I think in the future I may lean more towards Orson Welles. I think the further you get... The, the further you push into the Orson Welles spectrum... It sort of horseshoes into to uh, Christopher Walken. Like it's it's hard to know where in, in in a good drunken Orson Welles impression. It's hard to know where Welles ends and Christopher Walken begins. Any any actor will tell you that. I've heard James Lipton bring it up on Inside the Actor Studio all the time. I'm I'm positive. I can tell you this, aspiring actors, that hurts your voice to do that. My throat is sore now. <laughs> I'm a rock singer. Like, come on. I'm usually I'm usually pretty tough with that, but that was oh my a, God. A, little, a little rough. You're such a good sport, that, Zach. Thank you for so much for, for doing that for us. That was everything I hoped it would be. Um, and I, I hope that we could find more opportunities to bring, you know, drunk 1979 Orson Welles back to this program because he is always welcome. Let's do it. All right. I have, uh, I, I should also mention, uh, joining us after the break, we have a terrific guest um, so in addition to Orson Welles being here, which is, of course, always an honor, we are also going to be joined by a terrific uh, New York City-based songwriter and musician, Diane Gentile. She's got an album coming out later this year. She has managed the Bowery Electric, and I'm sure she's got like a thousand cool stories about managing that venue. It's going to be a blast. Excited to chat with her all about that. But before then, Zach, I wanted to chat a little bit about copyright. Because yes. we've got, I know, we, we love our copyright conversations around here. And I, I want to talk about it because I've had a listener question that I've had sitting in the hopper for like three weeks. Because I always do this. When people send me listener questions, for whatever reason, I don't get to it fast enough. Like we have other things going on. Like we have to hear from Orson Welles and things like that. And sometimes a listener waits a couple weeks. And I always feel terrible and I do this week because this listener had to wait a couple weeks. And this is a great question that this particular uh, listener uh, asked. And so I wanted to talk about it with you because I think it's something that would be important for you as well to kind of discuss as a producer. So here's the question. The uh, question asker writes in, Ryan, you talked about in the past why on uh, you talked about in the past why it is important to register your copyrights and to do it as early as possible. But what about if I released an album a few years ago? Is it too late to register my copyright? And if I do register, do I need to register each song separately? Or can I register the entire album in one application? That 
is a magnificent question. Um, yes, because that's fantastic. I know. Like I, I love it because it shows that they've listened to the program, which is always going to give them a special place in our hearts. They're asking the right question because they are talking. They understand why it's important to register their copyrights, which is awesome. Thumbs up. And you can tell they're budget conscious, which is always something that we want to be cognizant of around here because they know that while somewhat affordable, you know, a copyright can be as low as forty five dollars to sixty five dollars to register, you know, not nothing, but not an exorbitant amount. Those fees can add up if you are registering multiple works. You know, if you have to pay that fee multiplied times, uh, you know, 10 works, that yeah. can start to rack up. And so a lot of artists will wonder, well, if I'm making a whole album, can I register the whole album as one work and only pay one small fee? And up until 2021, the answer to this question was, yes, you can if you register before you release the album. If you don't register before you release the album, then you lose the ability to kind of bundle all your works together into one application. So that really stunk. And it would have stunk for this question at writer, right? Who, who put out their album, didn't know about copyright registration because we didn't talk about it on break the business fast enough, but then they did find out about it and they said, Oh crap, I already released my album. Do I have to register these works one at a time? Now notice I said up until 2021, that was the way things were. But as of 2021, the Copyright Office has heard our complaints. They have received our letters. And they created a separate kind of application for people just like the folks who, uh, just like the person who wrote us this question. They created a special kind of copyright edu- uh, application known as the GRAM uh, or the Group Registration of Works on an Album of Music. And so what the Copyright Office has said is that for people who've already released an album, we are going to give them the ability to register all of their works together on a single $65 application as long as the owners in all of the songs are the same. And normally when you put out an album, you're going to release it under your own record label or at least put it in your own name. And so generally you're going to own all the sound recordings. Where it gets a little tricky is if instead of registering the actual sound recordings of the album, you're you're registering the individual songs that you wrote, the written songs. Because sometimes you have different songwriters for those songs. So if you're registering the group of songs, all of the songwriters have to be identical for you to be able to register the whole group together. But for the sound recording, if you own all the sound recordings, you can register the groups together. And so this is a great way for artists to save a lot of money where if you if you put out an old album like if you have an album that's five six years old you want to register it but you're looking for a way to do it without breaking the bank this group registration option that came out in 2021 known as gram is a great way to save some money so ryan this is part of the reason i love the podcast i was unaware of that because i haven't registered a copyright since my last record came out which was pre all this i was unaware of the gram i first thought you were gonna talk about instagram and i was like no wrong gram ryan no turns out the entertainment attorney knows more about this than i do so that's really that is really fantastic for artists because i can think back to like some of my older recordings from way back when that have maybe been released under another name and weren't copywritten and now this is an opportunity for me to take care of that so dude thanks for thanks for me too it's super rad. And right, this option was made for creative professionals just like you, Zach, who have put out a ton of albums and, you know, they're out there, they're that you have this back catalog and you want to protect your works because we've talked in the past about why it's important to register your copyrights, but the idea of having to register every single song that you've you know made every single track that you've made multiplied times sixty five dollars sounds like a pretty good way to just you know empty your bank account. Right. Except now we got this gram option, which is pretty terrific. Um, and so I, I mean, it's a it's a it's a cool option. I encourage people to check it out. You just type in G R A M copyright, and you'll find the materials there. And it's it's really great. Can I ask you a follow up, Ryan? Yeah. So let's say I go back. I I take all of my an old album, I co- put it all under one copyright, but later I'm fortunate enough to get interest in sync licensing one song. Am I then able to go back and then do a separate copyright for that one song? Is that a possibility? 
Well, but if you use, so if you use the Graham alternative where you register the whole album together, you don't need to register the song individually because each one of those, because under that group registration, each one of those tracks has a separate copyright. This is fantastic. So you get, so basically if, if you were registering your 10 track album, it's like getting 10 copyrights for the price of one. That is stupid cool good job copyright office yeah no it's a it's great because i actually went back and you know in, in in preparation for answering this question i actually went back and read some of the like copyright office's rulemaking on this where they sort of explain because whenever they make a new rule they have to explain why they're doing it and when you read the rulemaking on this the copyright office is like yeah a bunch of musicians were like please do this we're begging you <laughs> And they're like, yeah, all right, we're gonna be, all right, we'll be cool for musicians. And so, and now here we are. Um, and I, I think before we go to break, uh, mainly because I think uh, producer Lauren is signaling to me that we need a few more minutes to get our guests ready. So I, I will talk to you about uh, a related topic, right, on this topic of copyright registration, because I had sort of an interesting experience on TikTok lately about copyright registration, where I decided to make a TikTok video. Are you on TikTok, by the way? I feel like. In name only. My band, Dear Marsha, is on TikTok, and I get tagged in their stuff. I don't post TikToks myself. Oh, platform's not ready for that. I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take up the bandwidth for myself. There's other artists who need. That's right. You know, <laughs> like all these other on. creators that need this platform. You get on there, you're just going to, you're just going to yeah. take all their, you know, views like completely. Yeah, I don't, don't want I don't want to do that to Beyonce. I love her too much. It's magnanimous of you, Zach. Like you're gonna, you'd come in there with your Orson Welles, and you know there wouldn't be any room for the rest of us. Now, um, I put out a TikTok recently talking about why it's important to register your copyrights, and so the video I made was you ever seen the movie The Glass Onion? Uh, yes. The, yeah. So I took there's a I, I took the sound of Benoit Blanc going, "It's so dumb." <laughs> and then the other girl going, it's so dumb, it's brilliant. And he goes, no, it's just dumb. So I took that audio and it, and I was, and it was me lip syncing it to the idea of people, instead of registering their copyrights, mailing their you know music to themselves, what they call the poor man's copyright. And so it was Benoit Blanc saying that that's really dumb. And I mean, I, I don't know, like, let me ask you about this, this poor man's copyright. Have you ever like heard about this Has like, has anyone in your life ever told you that instead of registering a copyright, all you need to do is just mail your music to yourself and never open the envelope. And it's just as good as registering a copyright. Somebody has told me that they were somebody I actually respect, um, very much. They're just, they weren't an attorney and weren't, weren't fluid in what copyright really protects and how it works and so i have heard it from intelligent people it's just it's not no don't well, do that well this is so wild because like when i put out this video a lot of the tiktok comments i got were people doing exactly what you said that they all had one person in their mm -hmm. life who told them that this was an okay thing to do that instead of registering a copyright all you have to do is mail your music to yourself and it's just as good as registering a copyright you always have like one teacher who told you this or one band member who told you this or one friend who told you this and i'm telling you it's not a thing there is no such thing as a poor man's copyright and that's what my video was about and so that's what most of the comments were on tiktok were people going um, really, that's not a thing, but I had one person in my life who told me it was, but then I got one commenter that, that kind of surprised me. It was sort of my first like TikTok commenter who got mad at me is the first Over time this, this has ever happened. <laughs> somebody wrote to me because like, if you're on TikTok, I guess long enough, somebody's going to accuse you of being classist. Um, somebody said to me, Hey, haven't you ever considered that some people can't afford this, all right? You're calling them dumb. Poverty is not dumb. <laughs> and I was like, uh-oh, okay. I No, sir, I, you are dumb. I was like, I need to nip this in the bud because, like, I can't, like, you know, I can't let people think that, like, I, I you know, I, I hate poor people. Um, so I wrote, I made a, a follow-up video responding to that person's comment. And among the things I said to them was, you know, one, you know, look, I, I sympathize with how tough it is out there for a lot of indie creators. Some indie creators, a lot of indie creators are struggling financially and, you know, every dollar counts. Right. And certainly the 45 to $65 it costs to register a copyright. 
That's not nothing. All right. I, I'm not saying that's nothing, but it's not as much as, say, the hundreds of dollars it can cost to register a trademark or the hundreds up to thousands it can cost to file a patent. Unlike a lot of things involved with working with the government, copyright registration is kind of on the cheap side. And when you think about what you get for those 45 to $65, it's a lot of bang for your buck. As we talked about on a prior show, registering your copyright, if you do it before somebody steals your work, you get statutory damages, which are really the only kind of damages you can hope to get in most copyright infringement cases, and you get attorney's fees, which means it's actually going to be easier to get an attorney to take your case if somebody steals your work. So registering your copyright is a smart thing to do. The other thing I mentioned in that video is if somebody steals your work and you have to sue them, you are required to register your copyright before you file a lawsuit anyway, so you don't avoid that cost. You know, it's just a question of are you going to do it right before the lawsuit and get none of the legal benefits, or are you going to do it before your work is stolen and get all of the legal benefits? And another note here about this poor man's copyright, of because the idea behind it is if I put the music in an envelope, seal the envelope, mail it to myself, I now have a sealed envelope with a postmark date, that proves when I created a work, and so it is just as good as registering a copyright. First of all, it's not as good, right? Because you don't get those legal benefits we talked about. And here's the second thing. If all you're trying to do is prove that you created something before somebody else stole your something, you don't need to go through the song and dance of mailing a work to yourself. You could post your work to SoundCloud. You could post your work to YouTube. You could email it to yourself. You could record a video of yourself that's going to have a timestamp that you can save to the cloud. You can upload it to Dropbox. All of those things can show, can prove when you created something and will save you a postage stamp. But none of those things are going to give you the legal benefit of the very affordable option of registering your copyright. So if anything can come of all of this, if we can just finally put to bed this notion of the poor man's copyright so that we all don't have that one person in their life that tells them that this is a good idea and is a reasonable alternative to copyright registration, I will be a happy man. I agree. And I think the thing that gets dangerous about it is it's one of those weird rumors that sounds just plausible enough to be true yeah. until you really think about it. And when you really think about it, and I had a, a professor who addressed this, not my copyright professor, who she got it right too, but a music business professor of mine named Scott Ferris, he brought up, he's like, what are you thinking? Envelopes aren't magic. They can be tampered with too. Like, <laughs> that's clearly not going to work. Like, you think judges who are used to seeing evidence are going to be like, well, he's got an envelope, so it must yeah. be good. He's got an envelope that he's kept at his house, and we can in no way verify the chain of custody. Yeah. Good like, enough for me. You uh, win. I remember Scott saying that in class, and I just was like dying laughing. I was like, he's got a good point. Because up until that point, I believed in it too, and then I was in. Then, so bless you, Scott Ferris. You're I a mean, good human being. It sounds cool, right? Like, it yes. sounds like something you would see in an episode of Suits. Oh, which totally. Is, which totally. is like a super entertaining show that manages to get at least one thing about the law wrong every week. You could imagine an episode where like, you know, Meghan Markle's character like finds the envelope that has the song in it and it's been sealed and that's how they win the big case. Yeah. Except in the real world, that's not how you win the case. You know how you win the case? By getting your gram application in for the low, low price of $65 and actually protecting your music. There we go. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, isn't that wild? Like we all have, like for me, it was a teacher in high school. There's, there's every behind every musician. There is one authority figure that told them at some point in their life to mail their music to themselves. Well, it's and I weird just, like, as a producer, it cracks me up because I'm like, you know, when you render a file, there's metadata that'll tell yeah. you when it was rendered. I mean, there's a million ways to track down. I think your idea of just upload it. That's the just best upload way. it. SoundCloud, like SoundCloud is like does that. That's what it's YouTube for. does that. But again, I would like to reiterate, not a way to protect your music. Yeah, a way to claim dibs on first right. idea, but not a way to legally protect yourself. Not a way to it. It will not protect your music. Uh, it'll protect your music about as well as mailing it to yourself, which is not at all. But at least with the SoundCloud method, you're saving forty two cents. Yes. And we're all about saving money here at Break the Business. And that's, Lauren, isn't that the real thing, Ryan? Yeah, that's what it's all about. We're just making you a star 42 seconds. at a time. I just had to pause and go, you think 
postage stamps are still 42 cents. Like, oh, God, he doesn't don't, make, don't, make me, don't make me the out of touch guy. How much is it? You know, I, got, I got forever stamps. Like, I probably bought them when they were like 31 cents. How oh much gosh. is a stamp now? Oh, my gosh. At least 60 something cents. And beyond that, like, shut up. And beyond that, really? like, you, can't, you can't put a physical thing that's not a flat letter in something. You need like a first class envelope. Like that's going to be a dollar something, a dollar twenty nine or something to send a, a, a file. Oh, my no, God. Heck like, no. That's at that. At that point, that's like almost as much as the copyright registration. Like, what, you know what? what are we talking about here? I bet this rumor started in the age of cassettes and they're like, mail yourself a cassette. Like, I bet it. that's how. That's, yeah. All you gotta do is put your wax cylinder in the envelope there, and and the and the Pony Express will bring it right back to you. It's just as good as a copyright. Absolutely, boy. I'm really mixing up my eras here. I have wax cylinders, which is like what early 20th centuries, with like the Correct. Pony Express, which is like 1850. I'm all over the place. Anyway, so, and I'm using like the transatlantic accent. It's we're, we're a mess around here. All right, uh, Lauren, can you give me a thumbs up here? Is is our guest ready? Very good. All right, let's take a break. Let's compose ourselves. We'll be right back in two minutes here on Break the Business. Ryan Corella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm RKPA does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. From USPS.com, the cost of a first-class standard-size rectangular envelope stamp, 66 cents. Good Lord, how have we not completely gotten rid of the national debt at this point? Like, that's crazy. That is that is so much. I've never sounded more out of touch. I've never sounded more boomery than when I came in thinking stamps were 42 cents. Bless you, Zach Sloan, for not correcting me. I really chime in, and at that point, I was like, I can't let him keep ranting about a 40-cent stamp. Like, this is no... <laughs> How long can we look that up? How long ago was stamps 42 cents? How how horribly dated did I home. sound? Was it more than two presidents ago? Like that's embarrassing. <laughs> Welcome back to Break the Business, everybody. <laughs> the getting older right before your eyes, Ryan Carella here with the nicest follow on X, Zach Sloan. And we are just uh, embarrassing ourselves or, you know, I'm not embarrassing or Zach's not embarrassing himself. He just gave in the command performance of a lifetime earlier channeling Orson Welles. I'm embarrassing myself. Producer Lord, when was the last time a stamp was 42 cents? 42 cents would be May 12th, 2008. Okay. Yeah, that's that's probably the last time I bought a postage stamp. So. <laughs> and you buy a big roll of them, you know? That's No, absolutely. No, I, I bought a bunch of forever stamps back in 2008. I got like big spools of them, yeah. Man, that's the game. I, I got to do some postage stamp arbitrage. I got to take some of these old stamps I bought in 2008, resell them for like 65 cents. 
Oh, yeah. You know, make a little tidy profit for myself. They make the sales by going, hey, we're going to raise it. You better stock up now. Stock up. And then they sell a bunch more. I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying that in many prison stamps are used as currency, and I think you could make some money. Mm. (laughs) Now we're seeing, you know, like, you know, for the longest time, we've been trying to talk about how to make money as an independent creator on this podcast. I think we've realized the real way to make money is postage stamp arbitrage. But if you still want to try to find success as an independent creator, I guess we don't blame you. And uh, we encourage you to keep checking out this program to help make that happen for yourself. You can check us out on all major podcast platforms and live streaming platforms and Sirius XM 145. Much love to Slam Radio for giving us a satellite radio home. Let's go ahead and bring out our guest this week, Zach Sloan, who uh, if hopefully is not so offended by our lack of postage stamp knowledge that she hasn't left us. She is an acclaimed NYC-based songwriter and musician whose song Motorcycle was once dubbed, quote, the coolest song in the world by Stephen Van Zandt. That is high praise indeed. Her new album, The Bad and the Beautiful, is slated for a September release, and you can find out more by visiting www.dianegentilly.com. We are happy to welcome Diane Gentilly on to Break the Business. Hi, Diane. Hello. How are you? <laughs> See, I the, nothing is more entertaining to me, Zach, than the guest who listened to our nonsense right before the interview and comes in with the nervous, what the hell did I do to get on this show <laughs> laughter? But no, I'm laughing because your stamp story is amazing because <laughs> I recently had to, to mail CDs out to like 55 or 65 radio stations. And I show up at the post office at like 4.35 because I'm always like really late. And I've got all these packages, right, of 65 um, CDs with me. And I walk in and I'm like, okay, I'd like to mail these. You know, how much are they? And she says, well, you can't mail them like that. And I was like, what do you mean I can't mail them? They were actually in packages like regular cd packages with the bubble like in the wrap. jewel cases yeah. like you know and no not even jewel cases they were cardboard inside like cardboard cases right inside of a regular package with with bubble wrap inside and she said oh well you have to put them in individual envelopes and they're going to cost you five dollars and fifty cents a cd whoa whoa no bueno well i was like no 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 something is really wrong here anyway it took me three days to get those stamps mailed and it cost me a dollar dollar 46 cents per stamp i mean oh my gosh boy that postal service what a racket huh um all right diane i i have so many topics i want to cover with you for you know based on like just the so like the laundry list of cool things on your resume chief among which is uh when you managed the bowery electric a very very cool venue that's oh i I loved it when i was in that city and it seems to me like it's one of those venues that just the people that have walked in there and have played it or have just frequented it, it's had to have given you your fair share of pretty crazy stories. Can you give us your coolest story from your time managing Bowery Electric? You know, to be really honest with you, that when when you're when you're running a business like that and you're the general manager and you're in charge of all the the booking, um, you don't even have time to enjoy yourself or to enjoy those really funny moments that actually happen. I have no funny mo- moments at all from working at the Barry Electric, wow. but we have, I definitely had a lot of fun working <laughs> there. I mean, when you have artists, um, you know, like Lenny Kay, for example, from the Patti Smith band, you know, or Richard Lloyd from television, um, those types of artists who have been there and have done it and seen it all, when they come into a venue, they're just the most wonderful people to have to work with. And they have, they don't care. They'll go to the bar and they'll have a drink. And it doesn't matter if they, if they're drinking three hours before the show and they're just so easy, you know, but um, it wasn't, I wouldn't say that it's full of really fun, exciting, like, not fun stories. It's just really an exciting place to be. Well, that's how you know she was actually good at her jobs. <laughs> yes, and I was. <laughs> you know, she ran a tight ship. She wasn't getting involved yep. in the shenanigans. And so that that place was running like a switch a Swiss watch while she was there, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so in your time, like from you know, you think back to those early days 
of managing Bowery Electric. Think about how much has live music changed and the experience of live music changed for musicians. Like, what would you say is the biggest difference between the live music experience for musicians back then versus today? I think that artists really appreciate playing live much more today than they 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 might have ten years ago. Um, I think that artists understand now that the experience of playing their music to fans is such an important commun communal experience. And um, I don't I don't know if I, I think maybe before COVID, maybe maybe they might have taken it for granted. I don't really know. I can't speak for other artists, but um, I can speak for the ones that I see that have come in since COVID, that they really are happy to be back on stage. They're so happy to be there. I mean, it's it it it's it's almost like you know, oh, the hell with the drink tickets. You know, we don't care. We're just happy to be here in the venue. Well, that's an interesting juxtaposition to me because on one hand, I have heard that from others in addition to you about how. We're all happy to be back on stage again post COVID. It's, you know, I miss, we, the performers miss that community and, you know, miss that experience and miss the crowds and just everything that comes with that. But we've also talked a lot about on this show about how the economics of live performing have gotten tougher for musicians, particularly post pandemic, as more and more large entertainment companies are kind of buying up the midsize and larger venues. And as, you know, transportation costs are higher, as inflation is higher, it can be a lot harder for a band to go on tour and yield anything that, you know, seems like a reasonable profit. Um, and has that been your experience? And how do you sort of balance the first thing that you said about how we're all happy to be back touring with this second idea that, like, it's harder to make ends meet while going on tour? Well, it's it's harder to make ends meet not only for the artists, but also for the venues. Really? Um yeah, I mean, I think that people's habits have changed greatly uh, since COVID. A lot of people realize that they don't necessarily always have to go out to have such a great time, that they learned how to entertain themselves at home. Um, so, you know, people come out, um, fewer people had were coming out immediately after COVID. Now we're starting to get back again to more people coming out. Um, but I just think that habits have changed. People want to come out to shows earlier. Um, they don't necessarily want to see a band at 11 o'clock at night. Um, you know, prior to COVID, if somebody offered me a show at midnight, I mean, I would probably still take it myself. Um, I would take a, a song at midnight, but I, I mean, a, a show at midnight, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to bring as many people that late as I, you know, right now as I could before. And then financially, of course, you know, you you do door deals and you do uh, for local bands, you do door deals. And then for the touring bands, you do somewhat of guarantees. But I think that um, most people are understanding that. It's um, we can only really pay what we make. And so there are always and, and I think this goes back to before COVID and just regular in the business. Like there were there are venues that will take big budgets and they'll throw a lot of money to people and they'll say, yeah. oh, we have all this money and they'll they'll cover the budgets. But at the end of the day, those venues won't stay alive very long. They'll be hot and happening for a moment. And then they'll disappear. I think any smart business, you know, is going to understand how to spend their money and how to how to find a way to work it out. I mean, there is no set logic and it's always a changing landscape. And the, the landscape changes every six months. It changes every year. And the rules and the regulations change every six months and every year. And how you go about doing booking changes every six months and how you go about playing as, you know, as an artist around town changes. It is heartbreaking as to see 
what's happening to the smaller and mid-sized venues. And uh, one of our v- uh, viewers actually just wrote an important comment that I think it is an important point. I referred to what the current state we are in is post-COVID when what I should have said was post-lockdown. Um, certainly COVID yeah. still very much a thing. And looking at some of the uh, epidemiological statistics lately might uh, be uh, making a little bit of a comeback. So, but right, the idea is, you know, certainly COVID's still around, but post-lockdown and people getting back to performing, you know, the implications of that. While we were uh, talking, Zach, I, I saw a great deal of nodding on your part with a lot of what Diane was saying there. Um, are, are you sort of seeing a similar perspective where, you know, since you're, you know, now that you've gotten back out on the road and back out performing, Zach, are you sort of happy that you're able to get in front of those crowds again, but also apprehensive at the idea that the finances of touring have gotten tougher than they used to be? Absolutely. I think, I mean, I, I share that when Diane said like artists took it for granted. I used to, I used to sometimes be like, I don't want to play tonight. Cause I, and now every time there's, I'm like, Oh, I got a gig. Let's go do this. Um, and so I think we've all had a little bit of a wake up call. One thing that is really hard too, though, is when, you know, when my band is working with venues, I mean, we have very frank conversations because we have good relationships with people. And they're like, look, we can't pay you what we used to. It's just, it's, it ain't that world. And I wish more people listen to Diane, start your shows earlier. Shows need to be going off earlier because pulling later crowds harder and harder. And if somebody out on the East Coast is saying that, you know that's true just about everywhere else because the East Coast yeah. was a little bit later usually. Am it's I right, just, Diane? Am I crazy? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, actually, I have a question. What bands are you playing? I'm in, I'm in Dear Marsha. Okay. D-E-A-R or D-E-E-R? D-E-A-R, just like the okay. letter. Dear Marsha, okay. Yeah, you know, like well, you put a postage stamp on it. You know. <laughs> well, I, For 42 I, cents. You're right about starting early, uh, but the problem is, is that we really need to go early to late in order to be able to make the numbers. True. True. So, uh, with that said, you know you need bands that are going to play late also, and you need an audience that's going to come out late. So, it's just a, it's it's never it, there's nothing that's ever the same when it comes to booking a, a venue. It changes all the time. Do you have any advice for create uh, for musicians that are touring, creators that are touring and playing live to kind of better adapt to the way things are now? Is there anything that they can do, perhaps with venue owners and the way that they talk and relate to them to to kind of strengthen their position in this world? Um, I don't think it's really the artists with the with the, with the venues that seems to be the issues. I I think that artists just need to understand that venues are a business. Hmm. Um, and they don't always understand that they think it's like, oh, you know, I get a gig at this place and I'm getting to play this place and it's super, you know, it's super cool. Um, but we wouldn't be in that place if we can't make money and if we can't get people into the door. So I think that art is taking a, a, a more aggressive approach in trying to show the venue that they're able to, uh, sell advanced tickets is really yes. important. And, and, you know, this comes from somebody who has been there and, and struggles sometimes, you know, like if I, if I went to play another city, I mean, maybe 10 people would come out, you know, or 20 people or 50 people, but I have to make sure that when I'm going to another city that I do everything possible as an artist to help that venue to sell that show. You know, it's it's part. Unfortunately, it's part of my responsibility as an independent artist. If you're an artist and you have a large management company um, that's helping you, or you have you know booker booking people, you have publicists, um, you know that big support network. Those people can help you also. But at the end of the day. The artist is the one that has the text list. I have a list of contacts in my phone. And at the end of the day, I build that that text list up. And if I'm going into Chicago, it's my responsibility to make sure that I send a text out to all the people that I know in Chicago and letting them know I'm coming to town. You got to come out and see me. Uh, that's the only thing that I would ask artists to really pay a little bit more attention to. That is great advice. So when when you get a gig with a venue, rather than just seeing yourself as the labor for that night and it's the venue's job to promote you, it sounds like what the artist should be perceiving it as is being a partner in that venue's success. When you are coming to town, 
be the person that can help that venue out, bring people to that venue, promote that venue so that, you know, you guys, you and the venue can succeed together. I, I love that perspective. Yeah, and you have to remember also that, be, you know, back 20 years ago when we had bands that would come and play and the internet wasn't as, you know, we didn't have like Instagram and, and all of the great um, modern areas of social media to be able to get to, we, on one hand, it's great because we can reach a lot of more people. But on the other hand, when we didn't have that, our concentration was making great flyers and making great posters and making really cool stuff, you know, that people would get excited about and stickers and things like that to get up on the walls and go out and poster places and put, you know, hang posters up on lamp posts and you know venues did that kind of stuff and artists did that kind of stuff also now we still do posters we still do social media we still do the best we can you know with hashtagging and all of the social media that we can and whatever kind of advertising we can um but it's a different way of promoting these days for venues and 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 the internet and online and social media is so flooded, you know, beforehand, it was just about, let's get the community of people that we have in the East village to know that we've got this great show coming. <laughs> yeah. We have these great bills just by putting up posters and putting up flyers and cards, you know, it was different. It was more community based. I love that perspective and you know, certainly getting some of the artists today to adopt some of those techniques to, to help venues so that everyone can succeed together makes a lot of sense. I, I do want to talk about uh, your album a little bit that's Good. coming out, The Bad <laughs> and the Beautiful. I know, I know, uh, uh, you know, and uh, particularly I want to talk about sort of your process for songwriting, which I imagine was brought to bear in creating this album. Zach, you're going to love this. All right. I read this from Diane's bio in terms of how she writes songs. Because I've never heard it quite a, a songwriter's process expressed quite like this before, and it definitely warrants follow-ups. This is from her bio. Quote, Diane sees her songs in her head before she hears them. They come to her as emotionally evocative scenes that she's then soundtracks. Can you walk us through that? That sounds amazing. You're playing movies in your head and then you are scoring them and then those songs become the songs of your album. Do I have this about right? Yeah, you do, unfortunately. That sounds amazing. There's nothing I'm do that for my next record. I'm That's the coolest thing I've that. ever That's heard. Dope. That is well, so much cooler than, oh, yeah, I, I write the music and then I write the lyrics. No, you're, like, you're, you're Hans Zimmer in your head. That's so much cooler. I mean, I yeah, exactly. Like I, I wake, you know, whatever. I wake up or I'm walking. I go for a run, you know, down to the park and um, or whatever it might be. Sometimes I just get like a scene in my head, like a, a scene. It is not me. It's people you know, doing something or having a situation or a feeling or whatever, you know, and it's usually influenced by something from the past that I might have recently experienced, like uh, with Walk With Me, which is a song on the record that's the current single that is a, a duet with Alejandro Escovedo. I had been um, on tour and I and Alejandro had invited me to stop by his house to have a cup of coffee in Austin, Texas. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And we went there and we I, I was so honored to be at, at this guy's house. But the experience of pulling up in his driveway and going down this driveway, if you saw this driveway, this driveway is about two miles long. It's completely white sand. And, and around the driveway, which is very windy, there are these very pale, like um, cyan colored trees, you know, along the pathway. And I was just it, it was mesmerizing to me. And the and then, so of course, when we got to his house, I said, you know, can we go for a walk? Like, can we walk down the driveway? I just want to walk down the driveway. I mean, we drove down the driveway, but I want to walk that driveway. And we just went outside and we went for a long walk from the from his house all the way down the driveway and all the way back again. And it was a, an immensely calming uh, experience for me and, and visually really beautiful. And so when I sat down to write Walk With Me, I wasn't really thinking like, oh, I'm going to sit down and write. Like, I, I didn't really know 
what was happening. I just kind of saw his driveway in my head like nine months later. This happened, you know, a year later, just out of the blue. I was just sitting down and I was thinking about his driveway and I was like, oh, I think I got, I think, I think I want to talk about something. And I just started to write the lyrics and play the music. That sounds like an amazing way to write a song. And, you know, because it, 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 you bring in the perspectives of the world around you and, you know, by sort of seeing a movie in your head, like it sort of inherently uh, creates a storytelling aspect to your music, which is going to make that music so rich and exciting. I, I'm already seeing Zach thinking about, I got to write my next song this way. This is going to be cool. <laughs> it's just it really almost, funny. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Zach. Well, I was going to say, it almost, so do your records, because I, I listened to your to your your music, but I didn't listen to it through this lens. Do your albums almost feel like wide-spanning concept albums then? Or are they each song insular in their own story? Is each song its own movie or is it like yeah. one big movie? Each song is its own movie. And then I just put the album together. Like the, the you know, Motorcycle, which is not on this record, but that was on my first record. Like cool song. somebody had given me a brand new cool Gibson Melody Maker guitar. I had just gotten it for as a birthday gift and it was it, yeah it was really special That's it was dope. really special it's a vintage mill it's really good like the um, Joan and, Jett guitar yeah it is oh. it is it is it's just such a cool guitar and um i so i brought it home i was so excited i brought it home i sat in 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 my little living room area where i play my music and i plugged it in and i was just like wow this guitar is great and suddenly as i had the guitar in my hand I saw a, a movie in my head of a girl getting on the back of a motorcycle, driving upstate New York to like Monticello. And the story just unfolded, but it started with that vision. It was just a vision that I had for a moment. And that's where the song came from. And I wrote the whole song in like two minutes. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Uh, so the album, are we? I have here in my notes that it's slated for a September release. Is that still about right? Yeah, it is. It's September fifteenth. I'm doing um, a, a big record release party on August thirtieth with Alejandro Escovedo. Is coming up to sing on the song with me. Yes, um, Lenny Kay is a friend of mine, so he's going to come and special guest appear. Um, I'm really excited. It's going to be it, it's going to be a good night. That's fantastic. Uh, you can find out more about our guest's work by going to dianegentilly.com. Diane, this is so, so cool. I, I've, I've loved your perspective on touring. I loved hearing about your songwriting process. I mean, this it, it's got to be one of the coolest ways to write songs that I've heard. I think next time an, an artist comes to me with writer's block, I'm going to give them your method. Um, <laughs> before we let you go, we got one last question for you. Okay. Do you have any last tips for the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Oh, I wish I did. I really, honestly, truly wish I did. Um, I can, what I do is I work really hard. That is the first thing. I mean, there are days uh, where I will work from 10 o'clock in the morning until 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. Um, it is, you have to make a lot of friends. You have to be able to um, love other people. I mean, I well, I don't know if this is right for everybody. I mean, you know, I don't like to give advice to people because I don't, I think that everybody's journey is their own journey is, is kind of how I believe in things. So I, I would never tell anybody, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. But I, I would say for me um, that I work really hard I listen to other people's music as much as I can. There aren't a lot of uh, hours in a day for me to listen to the amount of music that I'd like to listen to, but I, I do listen to other people's music. Um, whether it's somebody who is a really big artist who just puts something out or whether it's an upcoming artist who sends me um, a song, you know, I will always listen to it. I don't always get back to them and say, Oh, I, you know, I love this. Sometimes I don't love everything that I hear. Um, but I do listen to music. Um, I try very hard to be polite to people in the music business, um, uh, to understand that everybody is working really hard out there and it's not an easy, 
uh, business. If you're planning on getting rich playing music, I, I don't actually, I have a question for you. That's not how this works. (laughs) I don't believe. Okay. I still do not believe this. I do not believe that people that are, that have these huge amounts of Instagram followers and huge amounts of TikTok followers and huge amounts of, of all of these followers online that are claiming that they're making $3 million and $4 million and $2 million um, off of their music because of that. I don't believe that that's really true. Well, uh, I only make, I mean, I have 243 TikTok followers and I only make a million dollars. So, you know, just to give you some. Oh, you do? That's right. You know, just to, so like, yeah, I mean, obviously we want to tamp down people's expectations because like three million, four million, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Producer yeah. Lauren being like, nope, uh, he can't even afford one postage stamp with what he makes on TikTok. He doesn't even so, know how much a postage stamp that's is. Right. <laughs> um, Ryan, I have a stat on that actually queued up. A so, stat? Yeah, okay. so not specific to TikTok, but last year there was just over ten thousand artists in the world who pulled in more than ten thousand dollars, or excuse me, more than a hundred thousand dollars in royalties from streaming. That accounts to point eleven percent of artists on streaming services made more than a hundred thousand dollars. So wow. we're talking about a tiny, tiny number. So I think Diane's probably right on to, right on target there. Yeah, because, you know, I see, like, I read a lot of these things and I read a lot of stuff that comes in about Spotify and and there are all of these artists who are explaining, oh, well, I made a million dollars here and I did $600,000 here. And I'm just thinking, you know, it's just part of their, I I mean, maybe I'm wrong, uh, but I, I feel like it's part of their way to make themselves look bigger to the world. Uh, because they're not really being transparent in what is actually happening. And I think that by saying that they make a million dollars, maybe people are more interested in what it is that they have. Are you saying that people are lying about themselves (laughs) on the internet? (laughs) Come on, not on the internet. Um, No, it's uh, it's, it's important perspective and really appreciate your insight here, Diane. Uh, This has been fantastic. My thanks to you. Our thanks to Zach Sloan and producer Lauren and Orson Wells uh, for joining us on Break the Business. Uh, Really appreciate all the viewers and listeners checking us out as well. We'll see you next week. Thanks.